Oh, good morning, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, and good morning to those who are joining us online as well. Uh, can I ask you to turn with me, please, uh, in your Bibles or your device uh, to 2 Samuel 13. Uh, the order of service only got some passages, parts of the passage, so you don't have the whole thing. Uh, so nice to see the whole thing, 2 Samuel 13. Um, so if you've got it on your Bible or in your device, 2 Samuel 13, the, in the order of service there is an uh, outline uh, of, of the sermon. Uh, before we begin the sermon, can I just say that there are some things in this passage that might be difficult. Uh, for some people, it might trigger emotions or memories. Uh, and if there are things that this passage raises that are hard for you, uh, then please do find a Christian brother or sister whom you trust, uh, share with them, and ask them to pray with you. Uh, and if you'd like someone from the pastoral team to be that person, then we're very happy to do that. You just come and speak to us after the service, uh, or you fill out a Connect card. Uh, and if you're a sister and you'd particularly like to have an appointment with another woman, just let us know on that Connect card, uh, and we'll make sure that happens. Uh, and parents, uh, you have read the passage, uh, so I will leave it to your discretion uh, whether the kids remain with you uh, during the sermon. Let's pray as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we know that your word is good, uh, even though it speaks to us about things in this world that are bad. And so we pray that uh, you will help us, that you will speak to us uh, by your spirit through your word, um, that uh, we might know what you are saying to us today. Uh, and we ask that your spirit would point us to Jesus and help us to love him and obey him uh, and to follow him uh, in our lives. And we ask this in his name. Amen. 1,000 years before Christ, back in 1 Samuel, God chose an unlikely shepherd boy, David, a man after his own heart, to be king. He put his spirit upon him, made him the anointed one, the Messiah. And David became king, that became the savior, rather, of Israel. But he was persecuted by the incumbent king, Saul. Yet he never took the kingdom by force. Like the ultimate Messiah, he suffered first before entering into his kingdom. In 2 Samuel, David became king. First he became the king of Judah, and then later the king of all Israel, again foreshadowing the ultimate Messiah. In 2 Samuel 7, God made amazing promises to him. The son of David would build God's temple. The son of David would be God's son, and his dynasty would last forever. David ruled Israel as God's king should. Uh, we saw in 2 Samuel 8.15 that David administered justice and equity to all his people. He defeated his enemies, God's enemies. He showed grace and kindness to Mehiposheth in fulfillment of his promise to his father. David was God's chosen king, and what a king he was. But two weeks ago, we saw how this all began to unravel. In chapter 11, he fell into sin. In that chapter, which makes no mention of God until the very last sentence, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and to cover it up, he arranged the murder of Uriah. But God saw what happened. And this chapter ends with this chilling sentence, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Last week, we saw how God dealt with David. He brought his word to him through the prophet Nathan. 2 Samuel 12, verses 9 and 10, Nathan said, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? 
You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David heard the word of God and repented. He genuinely turned from sin to God. And the Lord put away his sin. The Lord forgave David. He did not die. But nevertheless, David had utterly scorned God. And the child whom Bathsheba bore to him died. And you wonder what's going to happen to the house of David. God had promised the house of David would last forever. And that promise was still good, even though David sinned. So then we look at the sons of David. You wonder, who is it going to be who is going to inherit these promises? Bathsheba bore David another son, Solomon, whom God loved. But there were other sons of David as well. And there are two of them who play a significant role in the next part of the story. And we meet both of these in verse 1 of chapter 13. The first is Absalom, David's son. He's introduced first because he's really going to be a key player over the next six chapters. But the one thing we are told about him here is that he has a beautiful sister whose name is Tamar. And then we meet another son of David, who is actually David's first son, Amnon. And Amnon becomes infatuated with Tamar. Because she is his half-sister, he can't ask for them to get married. There is no good way to satisfy this infatuation. Just like there was no good way to satisfy his father David's desire for Bathsheba. There are times that as sinful people, we develop sinful desires. Desires for which there is no godly fulfillment. They are wrong. And we must fight against them rather than indulge them. And we must remember that they are but sinful perversions of the godly desire for satisfaction that will ultimately find their fulfillment in God and his people in the new creation. But instead of accepting this is not to be, Amnon allows his desire to grow. He must have Tamar. But she lives with the other virgin daughters of the king. He has no access to her. His desire becomes an obsession, even to the point that it's affecting his health. And so his friend Jonadab, the son of David's brother, speaks to him. Jonadab is known as a clever man. My guess is he's also ambitious. He wants the favor of the future king. After all, Amnon is David's first son. He says to him in verse 4, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell us? And Amnon eventually explains, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's son. Be careful, won't you, who you open up to and share your deepest feelings with. An ungodly person may give you ungodly advice. Jonadab is smart. 
but he's not godly, a dangerous combination. Instead of telling him to get over it, instead of telling him to not to act on his ungodly desires, Jonadab instead comes up with a plan to get Amnon and Tamar alone. He says in verse 5, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat from her hand. And that's what Amnon does. David falls for it. He sends Tamar to her brother Amnon's house. And Amnon is lying there, supposedly sick. She takes the dough and kneads it and makes cakes and bakes the cakes and empties the pan for the meal, but he doesn't want to eat. Instead, he sends everyone away and tells her to come and feed him in the chamber, his bedroom. And she brings the cakes into the bedroom and when she tries to feed him in verse 11, he takes hold of her and says, come, lie with me, my sister. And she rightly refuses. Her first word in verse 12 is no. And no matter how perverted he already was, no matter how wicked his plan was, he should have backed off at that point. No means no. She resists, argues with him from every angle. She pleads with him, do not violate me. She appeals to him, such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. She wants him to think of her future. As for me, where could I carry my shame? She wants him to think of his future. You will be it's one of the outrageous fools of Israel. She even gives, them, gives him an unlikely alternative. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he does not listen. He overpowers her and rapes her. And this, my friends, is a terrible, terrible evil. David acted wickedly with regard to Bathsheba. And now this son of David is even worse. There is no excuse for sexual violence. Sexual violence against women is a terrible reality in our sinful world. And if you are someone who is a victim of such evil, I am so sorry. Know that it is wrong, that you are not to blame. Tamar was not to blame. Amnon was to blame. And those who propagate such evils deserve judgment. In this world, by the proper authorities God has appointed, and in the world to come, by the judge of all the world himself. Under the law, once a man lies with a woman, he is obliged to offer to marry her and to look after her for the rest of her life. Now, there might be obvious problems with marrying Tamar because she is his sister. But whatever else happens, he, Amnon still has obligations to her. But now that he's had his way with her, he despises her. In fact, verse 15, the hatred with which he hates her is greater than the love with which he loved her. And, and, and he 
tells her to go away. She pleads again in verse 16, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other you did to me. But he will not listen. He calls his servants in in verse 17 and says, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her, as if she's the one harassing him. Except he doesn't. The word woman there is supplied by our translators. What he's saying is, put this out of my presence and bolt the door after her, as if she's nothing. And having been evicted from Amnon's home, Tamar puts ashes on her head as a sign of mourning. She tears her long robe that the virgin daughters of the king wear to show that she's no longer one of them. She lays her hands on her head and goes away, crying aloud as she goes. A broken, distraught woman. Her brother Absalom speaks gently to her. He tries to comfort her, saying in verse 20, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. At this point, we don't know why he's saying this. But to his credit, Absalom does what Amnon doesn't. He takes Tamar in and looks after her himself. And so she lives, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. Verse 21, the following verse in the passage, is a very important verse. It's the pivotal verse on which this passage moves. Because in verse 21, David, no, King David, hears about what happened. Remember back in 2 Samuel 8:15, David administered justice and equity for all his people. That's what a king is meant to do. And that's what Tamar needs now. She needs a king who will administer justice and bring vengeance upon Amnon for what he has done. So what happens when David finds out? Verse 21. When King David hears of all these things, he is very angry. Rightly so. But that's it. He's very angry, but he doesn't do anything. In chapter 8, he administered justice and equity for all his people. But that was before Bathsheba and Uriah. Now he can't even administer justice for his own family. Probably because he feels like he has lost the moral authority to do so. Thank God that the true David, the true king, the final judge of all the world is indeed without sin. And so Jesus can judge sin with perfect justice without having three fingers pointing back at him. Absalom hates Amnon, and you can understand why. He says nothing but he does plot. And two full years later, he makes his move. He has sheep shearers at a place called Baahazor, which is about the same distance from Jerusalem as Batu Caves is from here. 
And shearing time is traditionally a time for celebration. And so he invites the king and his servants to come. Uh, David declines in a very polite kind of way. Uh, when uh, Absalom insists, he gives his blessing, but he doesn't want to come. And so Absalom says, can you send Amnon and your sons? David doesn't understand why, but Absalom keeps on pressing him, pressing him, pressing him. And then David finally agrees. The one who manipulatively sent Uriah to his death was manipulated into sending his daughter into desolation and now is being manipulated to sending his sons to this feast. What a terrible irony for David. Because Absalom has bad plans for this feast. At the feast, Absalom commands his servants, verse 28, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. The servants of Absalom do what he commanded. Amnon is killed. And when Amnon is killed, the other king's sons quickly run away. They get out, they mount their mules, off they flee. Because they don't want to be next. Because they know if this is the start of a coup, then they're going to be next, right? Because if all of them are killed, then Absalom has got no challenger to David's throne. And so there they are running off. Camera switches to David. And they're still on their way when news travels to David, faster than they get to David. And the news is... A little bit wrong. The news he gets in verse 30 is that Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. On hearing the news, David gets up and he tears his garments and he falls to the ground in despair. Begins to feel that same kind of grief and anguish that Tamar felt when she acted in a similar kind of way. He has lost all his sons, and with them all hope for the future. His servants, who are standing by, tear their garments. They join him in their grief. What's going to happen to God's promises to David now? There are no more sons of David except, except Absalom, the murderer. But then, guess who makes an appearance in the midst of all their mourning? Jonadab, the son of David's brother, that man whose wicked advice led Amnon to sin in the first place. Now he's with David. And he actually offers the comfort of a right diagnosis. It's not a coup, it's revenge. He says in verse 32, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister, Tamar. He was right. Even ungodly people can get it right. Doesn't make them godly advisors. And yet still you wonder how Joanna Depp knows all this. Is he really so clever? Or has he been colluding with Absalom all along? Well, the next thing we hear is the voice of a watchman with young, sharp eyes. And he reports that there are many people coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. 
unexpected direction. Turns out they are the king's sons. Perhaps they've taken a circuitous route in case Absalom decided to, to uh, pursue them on the main road. Johanadam was right. Of course, he's very quick to point that out. By the time he finishes speaking, the king's sons arrive. And they weep, and the king weeps, and all the servants weep bitterly. They've lost Amnon. But at least David has his other sons. In the meantime, where is Absalom? Well, the narrator of the story tells us three times that Absalom fled. His sin led to his exile. He goes, in verse 37, to a place called Geshur and lives under the protection of King Talmai, who happened to be his grandfather on his mother's side. The narrator also tells us, uh, in verse 37, that David mourned for his son day by day. With, we think he's talking about Amnon, but we're not entirely sure. But we do see in verse 39 that David is eventually comforted about Amnon's death, and he begins to think about Absalom, his son in exile, which sets things up for the events of the next chapter, which we'll look at next week. But by the end of today's chapter, you can see that David is a mess. He can't judge the nation, can't judge his family, he can't exercise his kingship properly, but he can't resign. He's God's chosen king. And there's no point in resigning even if he could. Who, who will he hand over to? His sons? As a man before God, David had been forgiven. His sin was borne by Christ on the cross. His name is written in heaven. He will not die. He's repented. He's good. But in this life, as king of Israel, his sins are still coming home to roost. And friends, there are times when there are temporal, that is this life, consequences of sin that remain even when we are forgiven. For example, if a church pastor falls into grievous sin, he may repent and be forgiven by God, may have eternal life. But it doesn't mean he can go back to pastoring again. Or if someone commits a crime, they may repent and be forgiven by God. But they may still need to go to prison for the things they've done. David might be forgiven as a man, but as king he is now useless. And his sons are like him. Only worse. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. That is so bad. Amnon does what he does to Tamar. That is even worse. David arranged for the murder of Uriah, his captain. Absalom arranges the murder of his own brother. Amnon and Absalom are sons of David, all right. But in the worst possible way. They are nothing like the true son of David. Amnon is nothing like Jesus. Jesus had close relationships with women, sometimes earning him the criticism of the religious crowd. 
but he always loved them with pure and perfect love, never treating them as objects, but as people made in God's image. We see in the Gospels, we see him teaching, forgiving, accepting, bantering with, and where needed, rebuking women. Jesus never used and discarded people, women or men. Instead, he loved them, served them, and ultimately gave his life to save them from their sins. Jesus always treated people better than they deserved. Amnon, the son of David, is nothing like Jesus, the true son of David. Are we like Jesus? Or are we like Amnon? How do we treat people who are more vulnerable than us? Do we abuse them and discard them? Or do we treat them with respect? Jesus said, do to others as you would have them do to you. What would you like to be done to you if you were them? Follow Jesus, not Amnon. Absalom is nothing like Jesus. Jesus didn't take things into his own hands and sin. Uh, the day will come when he judges the world with justice, and he will do so because the Father has appointed him as the judge of all. He will do it rightly. But he never took revenge, never sought to punish before the time. Absalom is nothing like Jesus. Are we like Absalom? Or are we like Jesus? Do we let a rightful desire for justice turn into a wrongful plan for revenge? Will we let justice be done by the rightful authorities appointed by God, and if they fail, trust that God will bring about true justice in the end? Or will we take things into our own hands and compound one sin by committing another? Follow Jesus, not Absalom. The only person in this story who is a little bit like Jesus is Tamar. She is sent by her father to serve her brother, and she does. But she is mistreated by him and cast out, despised and put to shame. Jesus was sent by his Father to serve us human beings. But we mistreated him, despised him, rejected him, shamed him, and killed him. But God the Father, the righteous judge, did not just ignore this. He raised Jesus to life again, installed him as ruler of all, and one day all those who rejected him will give account for what they've done. But notice this. Justice was not done for Jesus in this life. He died without receiving justice. It came, but only through his resurrection. For him, it was the life after death. And it will be completed at the final judgment. Justice didn't come for Jesus in this life, but 
by his resurrection we know it will be done in the end. And the same God will one day bring justice for Tamar and for all the women who have been treated in similar ways. We should strive for justice for them now through the proper means that God has appointed. But we can be assured that justice will be done for them in the end. For the king who suffered the ultimate injustice is the king who will bring about true justice. Tamar needed a king who would bring her justice and vindication. David failed her, but Jesus won't. Amnon will be raised on the last day to face his judicial wrath for what he did to Tamar. And not just Amnon. Jesus will be the judge of all, the living and the dead. And he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. And friends, that is good news. Finally, we may ask as we read this chapter, where, where is God? Because he's not mentioned here at all. It's like all the characters have forgotten his presence, which is partly why all this happens, right? Just like David La in chapter 11. Amnon would not have done what he did if he feared God. Absalom would not have done what he did if he trusted God. Jonadab would have said what he said to Amnon if his wisdom was from above. This is a tragic story, a story of sin, a story where God seems absent because all the characters are ignoring him. Brothers and sisters, have you got any seasons in your life when you ignore God? Other days where you don't even think about him, you don't pray to him, you don't consider how he wants you to act. Of course, you're still Christian, but day after day you're in this kind of mode and you find yourself living without reference to God. Well, that's a kind, it's a dangerous kind of situation to be in. You repent, come back to him quickly before that wandering away leads you into sin that you can't undo. The fact that God seems absent from this chapter and his name is not mentioned doesn't mean he's not at work because, because he is sovereign. Even when he seems absent. In this passage, he's fulfilling his promises. He's fulfilling his promise of judgment. Remember God said to David in 2 Samuel 12, verse 10, The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. We know that for David, God is, God is acting in judgment. What happened in this chapter would just be the beginning of David's woes. Well, things will get worse over the chapters to come. Because this word of the Lord is now coming true for David. We don't know what God's plan is for what God, why God does what he does in the lives of the other characters. We're just not told. It's not, we're not told their story. 
but we do see why God is doing what he's doing for David. But God also promised David that his dynasty would last forever. And that promise was not annulled even by David's sin. So even when David and all his servants think that he's lost all his sons, that his dynasty is ruined, as he deserved it to be, actually it wasn't. Most of them, he got back. And likewise, when everyone thought that the ultimate son of David was lost forever, he wasn't. God's promises to David continued, and Jesus came back from the dead to be the risen king who will reign forever. God is sovereign, and in the midst of all the ups and downs of life, and the joys and the sorrows, even when we forget him, he is still there. We may not know what he is doing and why, but we know he is fulfilling his promises in judgment and salvation. And even the terrible sinfulness of man will not prevent that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are fulfilling your promises for judgment and salvation. Please help us to keep turning to you. Help us to keep remembering your presence with us. Help us to seek to serve you and to please you and to follow Jesus in all that we do. Help us to trust you for justice, knowing that you have instituted the proper authorities to execute justice in this world. And where we can, help us to work for that kind of justice. And even when they fail, help us to trust that your Son will execute final justice in the world to come. Keep us, we pray, from sin and revenge. And where we are given power and responsibility, help us to use it for good and not for evil. To be loving and just, not selfish and self-seeking. Help us to always treat other people rightly and to comfort those who have been wronged. And when in our sinfulness we develop desires that are sinful, give us the strength to resist them rather than indulging them. And protect us, we pray, from the ungodly advice of those who would urge us to do otherwise. And we pray especially for those among us who have been mistreated in various ways, May they find hope in your justice and comfort in your love. And we thank you for showing us that love in your Son who suffered and died to pay the penalty of our sins so that we can be forgiven. 
and who rose as our risen King, who will one day come again to bring about true justice. And so we pray that you help us to love him and follow him every day of our life. And we ask this in his name. Amen.